0: welcome to the show i'm martin willis your host and you know in a couple of days we're coming up on my favorite um holiday in america thanksgiving i just love it i think it's like an upbeat time and uh, we reflect on things we're grateful for at least i do a lot of people do and uh i'm really grateful to be here first of all as a lot of you know that i uh i was out and with some pretty serious surgery. And it's kind of changed my life in a way that I just, I'm just grateful for every day. And so this Thanksgiving is going to be extra special for me. And I hope it is for a lot of you out there as well. I'm real excited about today's show. I've got uh, David Marl is always a a favorite here and Barry Greenwood, which uh, he's been researching UFOs for a long, long time. And we're going to be talking about uh, a real exciting new launch David will be talking about that and Barry, as we get into this today. Um, the blog for this week is Robert Gribble and the National UFO Reporting Center. He's the founder of it. Uh, he was kind of a controversial guy uh, back, way back when, when it comes to NICAP and, and things like that. It's a very interesting blog. And also Wendy Connor, uh, she was involved in that too. And if you have never heard the uh, archives that Wendy Connor put together. There's, I think there's something like 252 recordings, vintage recordings of uh, UFO witnesses. And that's all linked right in that blog. Uh, so check that out in our show notes. And I think that's about it. I want to thank everyone uh, for watching these shows and supporting the show. Anyone can do that over at podcastufo.com. I appreciate everyone. And I am thankful for you all. And it's time to bring in my two guests, here's Dave Marler and Barry Greenwood. Welcome.
1: Yeah, oh, Nice to be here.
2: Martin, yeah. great to see you healthy and back, back in the saddle again. So just want to say it's <laughs> great to see you
0: healthy. Yes. And Dave, I'm, we were so looking forward to hanging out together. And, you know, then I had to have that silly operation.
2: Martin, you're like a bad date. You stood me up twice. <laughs> <laughs> I know. First to Shag Harbor.
0: And, and then, then Phoenix, Phoenix. Arizona. Yeah, I know. We were saying, oh, great, we're going to be hanging out. We're all excited. <laughs> well, it just shows you who's in control, not me. That's all. No, you yeah.
2: definitely had a valid excuse, but in all sincerity, it's great to see you back.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much. So uh, I'm excited. This is kind of an exclusive uh, uh, talk about this situation. And, uh, David, I know you your beautiful archives out there and Barry, you've been at it for such a long time. And uh, for those people looking right now, you can see a lot of things behind uh, <laughs> behind Barry. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's yeah. all all part of these archives, and um, it's it's real exciting. And um, so let's let's see, Dave. Do you wanna do you
2: wanna talk about how this uh, all came about? Absolutely. And I think uh, the best place to start would be to really pick up where we left off. Uh, it was 13 months ago that Barry and I were on the show with you. That's right. Right. And yeah. at that time, Barry and Jan Aldridge, uh, another colleague of ours, uh, were here doing scanning. And uh, Barry, what was the final tally, about 36,000 pages that you scanned?
1: Yeah, I mean, over two weeks, uh, yeah, around 36,000 pages. And, uh, you know, it, it takes some time to sort all that out. But uh, we, we had to budget the time mostly for scanning rather than sorting. So you can always do the sorting back home.
2: Or, or socializing. Yeah. <laughs> we all we get in the same room and none of us look at each other or talk to each other. We're just busy stapling and organizing and filing and scanning. Yeah, there's uh,
0: time for that stuff later.
2: That's yeah. right. That's right. So, and just uh, as a point of clarity, what we were working on are the historic NICAP and Kufos case files. And so these are mm. files that desperately need to be digitized and you know, my hat's off to Barry. Really, he's done the lion's share of work spanning about, what, the last six or seven years, Barry? Uh, I've been
1: doing this uh, uh, each year, almost uh, omitting COVID year uh, since 2017. Yeah. So wow. just so an here's, inc- incredible amount of work.
0: Yes. And, and um, I want to point out to the to the listener how important this is, because this has nothing to do with money. This costs money. Everyone is spending their own money. Everyone is spending hundreds and hundreds of hours of their own time just for the passion of preserving these this great history. And so, uh, you know, I, my hat's off to you both.
2: Yeah, there's been tens of thousands of dollars invested. And I would argue that the, the team that, that we've assembled collectively would probably be exceeding one hundred thousand dollars in the amount of uh, purchasing travel costs, shipping costs, rental of U-Haul trucks to go and retrieve these collections from aging or dying researchers over the years. And, you know, really, uh, we decided to create this new organization. We've had NICAP, we've had APRO, we've had MUFON and the Center for UFO Studies, but all of those were really, uh, founded with the principle of conducting UFO research and certainly that's a component to what we're trying to do, Martin. But Barry and myself and our colleagues, uh, we created this new institution, the National UFO Historical Records Center, with the express purpose of preserving the history. And certainly researchers will will come and access the material to do their own research. But historical preservation is really the cornerstone of what we're trying to do with this new organization. And it was born out of necessity. We just didn't arbitrarily decide, hey, let's create a new organization Um, I think as evidenced by what you see behind Barry, his entire home is filled with historical UFO material. And I would argue it's probably the largest, if not one of the largest in the country. Uh, Jan Aldridge has much the same situation. Uh, Another colleague of ours, Mr. Rod Dyke uh, from Seattle, Washington, arguably has one of the largest private collections. And uh, at the uh, top of the show, it's, it's funny, Martin, you mentioned Wendy Connors and Bob Gribble. Uh, Rod Dyke has those collections as part of his overall collection Mm -hmm. and he has sent me behind me here stacked up you can see cassette tapes Uh, I've actually got some of Wendy Connor's audio material that she never got around to digitizing so not everything is out on the internet and so uh, we have you know Rod Dyke working with us we have Mr. Rob Swiatek who's of course on the international board of MUFON a dear friend and colleague and then really rounding off the group, I think rather nicely, we have uh, Dr. Mark Rodiger and uh, Mm -hmm. Mark uh, representing Kufos. I became a Kufos board member as their official archivist. And having Mark in our fold, I think is appropriate. And also having Rob, who is on the board of MUFON, it really underscores the collaborative effort that, you know, we want to work together with these organizations and other archives that are out there, not just freestanding and independent archives, but Barry and I were chatting earlier this morning about Rice University and the University of Wyoming, the University of Arizona that has Dr. James McDonald's case files. Yes. We wanna create a network of archives. And certainly that's just here in the United States. We could argue there are some uh, wonderful archives outside the United States, such as uh, AFU in Sweden. Uh, they've done a yes. tremendous amount of work and really I think has set the standard with regard to archiving UFO material. Is that a uh, class, fun? Correct. Yeah, Correct. great guy. Great They've done done an incredible amount of work uh, documenting and chronicling and preserving uh, a lot of European UFO history, but also uh, United States material. And uh, I was on a chat group earlier today, and someone from Australia said, I wish we had something like this. And ideally, in a perfect world, every country, I would argue, should have a historical UFO archive. Uh, Mm -hmm. Admittedly, it's a global phenomenon, but it's also part of each country's history. Um, True. When you think of the term flying saucer, where was that coin 75 years ago this year? It was in Washington state, right? Mm -hmm. Kenneth Kenneth Arnold being misquoted. The term flying saucer was born, the term UFO born out of uh, the Air Force Project Blue Book uh, and uh, Captain Edward J. Ruppelt. And so there's a lot of American history that's part of this global phenomenon.
0: Right. And, you know, uh, one thing I'm very happy about is that you decided to call it the National UFO Historical Records Center instead of National UAP Historical <laughs> Record Center. Because, well, uh, they call me old fashioned. But well, no,
2: um, we've actually had a few people ask about that. They said, so you went with UFO. And again, in the vein in which this organization was created, it's about preserving the history. And when you look at the term flying disc or flying saucer, those were rather short-lived terms in the grand scheme of this phenomenon and the history of the phenomenon. The reason we went with UFO simply is because for the longest period of time, that is the term that most people used to reference the subject.
0: Right, right. Now, uh, Dave, you know, I've teased you a bunch of times by saying you're going to need a bigger boat,
2: Um, you know, the Jaws thing. Is that in part of what this uh, was born? Absolutely. Like I said, it was born out of necessity. Uh, And uh, again, it's, it's great that we're having this conversation 13 months later, because literally, uh Barry, correct me if I'm wrong, really the inception of this idea took hold when you were here with Jan last October.
1: Uh, well, actually, I would push it back a little further and say it, it started when you began building that add-on to your house and True. putting these things in there. That was the real beginning. Right. But I think as far as a, a
2: new organization, I think really it was born out of that two-week period that you were yeah. here yeah i would say and where we really started to kind of you know solidify these ideas or, or these abstract visions that we had for what do we do with all of this material and mm-hmm. and to your point uh, martin um barry has run out of room i'm to a point where i'm very close to running out of room and we have uh barry and jan's material destined to come out here in the short term we also have rod dyke who stated if we can get a larger building he would send his entire collection Mark Rodiger has already uh, donated uh, on loan the Kufos files so that we can get those digitized in the NICAP files. And in addition to that, and quite literally, I, I did a lecture series this year. I did about eight lectures, including Nova Scotia that we referenced earlier. Um, in going to these various venues, I've had people come up to me stating I wanna donate my collection of UFO files. I was in Ohio and two researchers in Ohio stated, can I get your contact information because I'm putting you in my will. And so, and this is what we've been asking for many, many years, even before this organization existed, Martin, we've asked that people please make succession plans. If you or a family member has a collection of historical materials, because as Barry can regale us with some very sad tales, Over the decades, many collections, many rare items and historical uh, artifacts have been discarded simply because the individual died and the family wasn't interested in the subject. And they literally threw it in the trash Uh,
0: Mm -hmm. in the blog this week that Charles Lear writes about Robert uh, Biddle. Is it Biddle or Brittle? Um, Gribble. Gribble. Gribble, Sorry about that. Um, He was frustrated uh, with the UFO field at one point and went to the... uh, landfill and put everything in the landfill. These things happen. And as a matter of fact, some of the project blue book files that were found in Ohio were at a yard sale, if I, if I remember, estate sale or something.
2: Yeah, Mr. Rob, right? Mr. Rob Mercer acquired Mercer. those. And yes. I got in touch with Rob by virtue of the work that I've been doing, but also I was lecturing out there in Ohio. And fast forward a number of years, we now have the Rob, uh, Rob Mercer slash Lieutenant Carmen Morano project blue book material here Next to, I might add, Dr. J. Allen Hynek's original case files.
0: Wow. Exciting. Uh, One of the things, uh, David, that comes to mind is I remember, you know, you were on this show a number of times talking about um, when something happens to you that these archives are to be uh, donated to uh, the University of New Mexico to preserve them. So what's what how does that fit into
2: all this? I'm excellent question, Martin. I'm glad you brought that up Uh, to be very clear. Uh, this new organization that we formed is there really as a stopgap measure. U- the University of New Mexico is extremely interested in acquiring this material because much like ourselves, they view it as part of history. It's not that UNM wants to endorse UFOs or they believe in UFOs, uh, but as, as Barry can attest, I took Barry there last, last fall when he was here, uh, they view it as history, And as such, like any other element of history, it should be preserved. And as I'm sure you and your audience can appreciate, especially here in New Mexico, with Roswell, with Aztec, New Mexico, the Farmington Flying Saucer Armada, the Green Fireball sighted over Los Alamos and uh, Sandia National Laboratories, Kirtland Air Force Base, um, such a rich history, Socorro, New Mexico, Mm -hmm, uh, White Sands. I mean, there's so much UFO history tied to this state. And I will tell you, from a cultural standpoint, people are very open-minded to the UFO subject here in New Mexico. I moved here 10 years ago from the St. Louis area. And uh, back in St. Louis, it just wasn't widely uh, received as it is here in New Mexico. People almost accept it as any other part of history here in New Mexico. So it seemed like a fitting home to have that here, especially with the university being receptive. But the one issue with the university, and this is not a knock against UNM, it's it's any major university that, that's out there listening to this, they will agree. When they acquire a large collection, they have to wait for the money to be raised to pay student labor, student work to come in, catalog, index, box, and file away the material before it can ever be accessible. And I've been told, depending on the size of the collection and other collections coming in at the time, we could be looking at eight to 10 years before a collection that's donated can be accessed by the general public. For example, if I donated everything that's around me today, I may have to wait eight to 10 years to see my own material. Even I couldn't access it because it technically would then become the property of the University of New Mexico. I don't think we could wait eight to 10 years to have my material, Barry's, Jan's, Rod Dykes, and all of the other material accessed, uh, especially As we are now starting to see glimmers of hope with regard to the United States government's interest in starting to look at the history with the uh, draft for uh, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2023. Yes. the, The GAO has expressed interest in now starting to look at the history. So I think the timing of this archive, the timing of this organization and our mission could run parallel to what the government is looking to do starting in 2023. Yes, I have to tell you, when I
0: heard you were doing this, that's the first thing I thought of was the mandate that I was reading um, about them going historically all the way back to the 1940s to look at the material, which is wonderful. I mean, I'm so glad because, you know, initially it was like 2004 or something like that. They were going to go back just so far because of the Mm -hmm. data.
2: Well, and, and, uh, uh, and even beyond that, Martin, the general dialogue, if you look at the news stories that have that have circulated since the New York Times article going back to 2017, when, when everything really changed with regard to the subject, uh, the, the scripting, if I can use that term, has been very narrowly crafted, where they're only looking at 2004 mm-hmm. moving forward. And of course, your audience is well educated on the subject, and they know this history goes back at least to 1947, if not further. Mm -hmm. And so we felt duty bound to try to expand that dialogue to now incorporate the history. In fact, uh, speaking of uh, the United States government, one of the individuals now that we are officially uh, registered in the state of New Mexico as a nonprofit organization, one of the people I look forward to meeting with after the first of the year is Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, who is one of the senators on the Senate Intelligence Committee looking at the UFO or UAP subject. Wow. Hey, um. I want to take a couple of side jacks,
0: uh, but before I do that, I'd like to ask um, since uh, Barry, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you scan 36,000 pages or something like that. will there be an online presence where people can access as well? I mean, that seems like a major
1: undertaking. Yeah, Uh, we expect there to be many, many things put online. Uh, uh, An issue with case files, for example, which is primarily what I've been working on, is uh, concern over the privacy of the individuals uh, who made the reporting. Now, many of the records go back decades. So it's not really an issue, but more recent years we have to be concerned and and uh, probably take out some of the names and personal information of some of the people involved in those reportings. So uh, that, that could be a lengthy process, but I, I really don't see any issue with, say, something prior uh, to the mid-60s or so, and there are plenty of those records to put up. So, you know, we'll we'll be busy with those for quite some time, just getting them uh up and ready for people to use and Uh let's
2: not forget the audio files this is just one of many rare audio files which i've digitized uh courtesy of rod dyke Uh, he had an incredible audio archive these are tapes from the national investigation committee on aerial phenomena NICAP. these were owned by richard hall after the organization disbanded and they eventually went to mr rod dyke and they eventually have come here and I've digitized over 256 of these audio recordings. Uh, this one being one of the oldest going back to 1959.
0: Oh, that that is excellent. Um, so we're at a place where I want to just take a, a couple of, like I said, a couple of side jags that are nothing to do with what we're talking about. And I'm going to start um, with you, uh, David. And that is, uh, uh, it seems to me, you, you're known or when I first when we first talked, um, you were the triangle UFO guy. Okay. <laughs> so uh, your book comes out, you do a talk everywhere around the country and up elsewhere on the triangle UFOs. Everyone knows you for the triangle UFOs and so much more. But I mean, that's where you made a big mark um, in that category. And now uh, I know I've sent you a number of people that have had Earlier, you know, early UFO triangle UFO sightings, right? So, my question is, have you ever thought about a volume two? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, putting you right I, on the
0: spot, aren't I? If only yeah. I didn't
2: have to work for a living, Martin. <laughs> the <laughs> yes. rarest commodity most people think is money. In my case, the rarest commodity is time, it's sure. just trying to find time to do this. And I, I, I should clarify because Barry always brings this up he goes, You know, people just assume you do this for a living. I work full time. Yes. I also have a family, my wife and two daughters, who I promised them this morning I would mention them. My, my daughters, Samantha and Michaela, they're they're 12 and 14. Oh. They have actually started prepping the NICAP Kufo case files for scanning because much of the work that Barry and Jan and I did was simply destapling old case files and re-gluing uh, newspaper clippings on the on white sheet backing prior to actually scanning it. So they've wow. actually started making a little extra money working in the UFO archive. I mean, what There's a not going
0: to be any child, child labor issues here. Is there,
2: I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think so. I pay them quite well, actually. So <laughs> they, but, they, they yeah.
1: haven't gone on strike yet. Not yet. Not <laughs> That's yet.
2: Good. That's but, good. Uh, so no, I, I, so I've got my daughters now actually involved helping us uh, get some of these files prepped and ready to scan uh, to your point, because we, Barry and I like to say that there's two central pillars to this new organization. One is centralization of the historical UFO data in one location for the express purpose of the second pillar, which is the digitization of that material.
0: All right. So uh, you did that very well. You kind of went around my question. And <laughs> no, uh, as far no.
2: As book, I would love to write a second book, yeah. but I would have to wait and see if, if I had some time afforded to me.
0: Yes. But uh, well, to continue on. In this, uh, have you received I, I know you've received a lot of very interesting triangle UFO uh, stories since since you've written the book. You must have.
2: I, 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 I receive them on almost a weekly basis. And one of the largest uh, uh, batches of triangular UFO reports I received was approximately two years ago when I did the unidentified uh, series episode with Mr. Christopher Mellon for mm-hmm. the History Channel. Yeah. And in the wake of that episode initially airing and then obviously subsequent airings, I received approximately two to three hundred reports from all over the world, wow. uh, people in Greece and Germany, Switzerland, uh, the U.K. And many of these reports uh, go back to the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, yeah. It's not a it's not a modern manifestation of, of the phenomenon, as many people allude. There, there have been people out there. Erroneously stating, well, we didn't really get reports of these things until the 1970s or 80s when stealth technology was yes. being developed. And in fact, my, my latest lecture series, I just concluded across the country uh, during COVID. You know, we all talk about what we did during COVID. Well, I was on the other side of the file cabinets immediately to my right, going through the NICAP case files. And I believe Barry uh, uh, confirmed this. I'm the first researcher to go through those historic case files. And we're talking hundreds, if not thousands, uh, going from 47 to 1977 and looking expressly for any and all triangular UFO reports. And I found at least 102 in the historic files. Wow. And, And the thing I like to point out, Martin, many people can call me today and say, hey, I saw you on TV. I had a sighting of one of those triangles back in 1965. Mm -hmm. It's something altogether different to find a contemporaneous document from 1965 that's been on file Mm -hmm. where clearly there was a report filed at that time. It's not like people are just jumping on the bandwagon today because this is the latest stylish UFO to report. These are contemporaneous reports going back some to the uh, even uh, early 1950s, mid 1950s. And what's ironic is, as I told my audience this year, and by the way, uh, on my website, the lecture in its entirety is out there. So if any of your audience haven't seen it and they would like to see some of these historic cases, they can go to my website. Um, But it's interesting because not only do we have the uh, distribution of historical cases, but the characteristics that are exemplified in those reports match the characteristic profile that I created back in 2013 when my book was published.
0: How about that? Wow. All right. So um, we are going to what we're going to do here is uh, I'm going to ask Barry uh, another question that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Then I'm going to jump over and look in the chat. So if someone is asking questions along the lines of the National UFO Historical Records Center or anything related to records uh, and you put your question in caps I'll and it makes sense, I will ask um, those questions. But for right now, I'm going to ask Barry this question Barry, I understand that you are the first person to write about the MJ-12 documents. And my, uh, my question to you is, uh, uh, well, I should probably keep my uh, opinions to myself of what I have thought about those over the years. But uh, I'm going to ask you, what's your opinion of those documents?
1: Well, I think they're all faked. Okay, that's mine too. <laughs> put it in a nutshell uh, yeah I'm I, I, I'm credited with having written about it publicly first but uh, it was a it was a peculiar way of getting there uh, like we had heard rumors in the early 80s about uh, mj12 and project Aquarius uh, I, I think the folks who were uh, generating all that buzz were the ones involved with it later publicly but uh, nevertheless uh, the information was uh leaking out so to say from uh, uh different anonymous places and we had noted the names and all but couldn't do much with it there was very little information uh in 1985 uh i heard from a fellow named lee graham who uh i, I had heard of him before but i didn't know much about him and all and he uh, he was very interested in filing FOIA requests on uh, ufos and uh at the time, stealth aircraft, uh, and, and he worked in uh, the aviation industry too. So uh, he sent me a package one day, and uh, it was a more full-blown explanation of MJ-12 than I had seen previously published uh, with uh, names and uh, uh, high, highly placed government, military, and governmental people and all. Uh, It it really wasn't clear where all that came from. Uh, He was passing information along uh, from, as I later found out, Bill Moore. But uh, nevertheless, he he, he gave me enough information about it, and it was obviously intended to be uh, made public uh, because he was essentially sending all of that to the editor of a newsletter. So I I put together an article and and included all that detail, and it was published in uh, uh, my newsletter at the time, Just Cause. And uh, I, I was careful not to imply that I was endorsing any of this as genuine. I was simply relating information that was given to me. And uh, even with that, we still didn't really have enough to go on with, uh, with, with filing FOIA requests and all. And uh, we had to wait uh, probably a couple of years after that until uh, some more substance came out on the story in the form of documents which uh, uh, Moore and uh, uh, Timothy Good had planned to release publicly uh, simultaneously uh, in the spring of 1987 and uh, when those came out I, uh, I, I took a look at them and I thought no this this can't be I, I was convinced totally within about 10 minutes of examining them that uh, there was nothing to it so I had to go through the motions of filing information requests with different libraries and archives and all to see if I could possibly track something down on the origins of it but uh, um uh, that never surfaced, uh, uh, with the exception of one document, which was uh, at the National Archives, and it was found in a very peculiar manner, which made that even suspicious. Uh, but th- they had released it, and uh, the other documents were made public. And I, I wrote a report on it in the fall of 87 uh, and absolutely trashed the whole thing. I, I just couldn't see how that could be real.
0: Yeah, there's... Uh, I- I was I was kind of I I had a number of conversations with Stanton Friedman who actually thought there was something to them and uh, you know I really had a lot of respect for him uh, but I I just couldn't buy um, that they were they were real for many reasons I, I do a lot of research on documents myself for what I do mm-hmm. for a living so uh, you know there was a lot of telltale things that just didn't seem right about him.
1: Uh, yeah you know the thing with uh, Stan. It seemed like the, the, the narrative of the story being created up to that time uh, was in the direction of uh, the, the information in the Roswell Incident, the book that Bill Moore did with uh, Charles Berlitz. And that's the story that, uh, that Stan was locked into. Uh, and it, it just seemed too convenient that all the detail favored his version of the story. There were other versions going around from other quarters. But, but this the, the MJ-12 information seemed peculiar to Stan. And obviously uh, he was going to endorse it because it, it, it agreed with his position. And he stuck with that position uh, for many, many years afterwards. Uh, he never relented on it being real. But mm-hmm. it, it just, it was way too convenient uh, to favor his part of that story. And I, I think it was constructed just for that effect to have Stan pulled in on it and, and therefore endorse what they were doing.
2: Now and, I- Oh, good. Go ahead, Dave. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, uh, uh, Barry, uh, something that I think most people don't know also is that prior to the quote unquote MJ-12 document surfacing, there was a novel that was being written And I don't know if you can elaborate on that, Barry. You have such granular knowledge on that.
1: Yeah, uh, we had heard rumors at the time that that, uh, the story was based on uh, a fictional account. And uh, a colleague of mine, Robert Todd, had uh, managed to track down uh, Bob Pratt, who was uh, uh, he had previously been known as a a reporter for the National Enquirer. He he wrote some of the more sane stories for the Enquirer. Yeah. Uh, but uh, apparently what, what happened was that Moore and uh, Richard Doty, who's a rather notorious figure in the subject, he he had been involved in some fakery even prior to MJ-12, uh, they they had teamed up to create a, a, a story with Doty as the hero, a fictional mm-hmm. account of government intrigue and UFOs and crash saucers and all. And uh, it was called The Aquarius Project. I think that was the final version of it. And they had Bob Pratt uh, uh, write it up because Pratt was an experienced reporter and writer. So the uh, novel was created. Uh, but at, at some point after that, uh, Moore and Doty decided to go with the story as genuine instead of fictional. Uh, at, at that point, they had lost Pratt and his support he Pratt didn't want to do this as, as a, a genuine account knowing that it was a fiction prior to that so uh Pratt told uh Todd that yeah he uh, he had produced a, a novel on this but he, he couldn't circulate it because essentially it was a copyrighted work and he had to have the approval of the other two authors to uh, uh make copies available so for many many years uh uh, we had only heard about it, and and Pratt's testimony was convincing because he was one of the authors that, uh, that there was a real deep problem with this story. In addition to all the other issues with the documents and so forth, uh, but uh, the, the, the document I understand it's out there on the net somewhere, uh, and I, I've, I've seen it, and it indeed is a, uh, a, a an account. Uh, having Richard Doty under a pseudonym, uh, being the hero of the whole affair, and I think that was the intent to uh, uh, present MJ12 as real, so that these guys could somehow cash in on it. Yeah,
0: that, that makes makes a lot of sense. Up, uh, I I was at, at an auctioneer, uh, a friend of mine was an auctioneer in Massachusetts, and he had an estate, and it was either a retired CIA, retired FBI, can't remember but uh, had come back from Japan. He was over in Japan for some reason. I can't remember. And the footlocker was there. His, his military, it was like an old military footlocker, but it had a mix of papers in it, documents from, uh, from the 50s all the way into, um, say, uh, the 1990s. And he pulls out the MJ-12 documents from there. And I remember contacting Stan. I said, Stan... I don't know what these are doing in an FBI, you know, footlocker, but um, but anyway, uh, you know, after I thought about it for a while and looked into that really a lot more, anyone can have an interest in something like that. It doesn't matter if they are ex
1: uh, Did you CIA. say they were they were from an FBI fellow? Yes. Uh, yeah, I can. I think I can explain that. It, the, the documents were in all likelihood sent to the FBI for comment and the FBI Uh, It issued statements saying that they were all a hoax and they'd actually taken magic marker and written across the documents uh, that they weren't real, Uh, and then would release those under FOIA.
2: And and Martin, you touched on this earlier, uh, and I know we've had private conversations on this over the years. Beyond MJ-12, let's remove ourselves from the MJ-12 discussion for a moment. This really gets back to a sound methodology when you're doing historical research if you can't establish the provenance of a document, you can't hang your hat on it and say it's gospel truth. And, you know, I really take issue with some of the more non-credible researchers out there in the field that disseminate these documents, support the fact that they believe that these are real, and then use that as a springboard to go into these long diatribes involved in conspiracy theories and cover-ups. And I, I believe that, you know, our argument for the reality of this subject, especially now that NASA and the AIAA and others are getting involved, we have to have the strongest links in the chain for our argument. We cannot rely exactly. on, on these documents that, you know, by all accounts, it, I always say they're not even MJ-12 documents. They're MJ-12 photos. We can't even analyze right. the paper, the watermark, mm-hmm. the ink. Yes. Um, and that's really kind of underscores what we're trying to do with the, the new organization, we want to preserve the original documents. We want to have those original source materials. So if anybody ever questions uh, the reality or the validity of documents, say 10, 15 years from now, they can always have recourse to go back to the originals. In fact, we just received a message uh, in the last week since our press release went out and someone asked, how do you preserve the integrity of documents once they're scanned? How do you know that they're not digitally manipulated in some way? once they're out there on the internet, quite simply, we keep the originals. We retain the original hard copy documents, Dr. Jalen Hynek's original case files. Uh, these are, in some cases, original documents, not photostats, signed by the actual base commanders.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Um, and, you know, the, getting to what you're, you know, to the point of what you're you're saying, uh, Dave, and that is that, you know, there's so many Good things out there. Why muddy the waters? And there's uh, there's many cases, and you know, I I get into that a little bit on the show every once in a while, and I I catch heck for it when I bring up Bob Lazar and people like that. um, The emails come flying in. I'll probably
2: get some for just for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I think I addressed this at the UFO Congress where I where I lectured recently. When we have people, especially on social media, quite often the argument is coming from here, not here. Mm-hmm. There, mm-hmm. It's an emotionally laden conversation or emotionally laden attack on an individual if you dare question any one document or individual in this field. And I think we need to divorce ourselves from emotion and use our intellect and try to be objective in looking at the subject. Because I'm here to tell you if you're shouting and you're red in the face and you're screaming and cussing at people, uh, you know, the government's not going to be interested in looking at the subject versus you present yourself in a professional manner. You provide information and informational content whereby you can have dialogue and discussion. Uh, I just don't think it, it serves any any purpose to develop a belief system. And it's almost like, you know, challenging a Christian that, that, that Jesus was a man. He wasn't the Messiah. I mean, it almost borders on that type of ideology and the fervor that people have with their beliefs in this subject. And I -hmm. I just think we need to apply more common sense as opposed to emotion when we start looking at this subject. And um, that's, again, something that we're trying to do is simply focus on the data. And really, uh, I think you could take any of these controversial subjects, Martin. You mentioned Bob Lazar, we mentioned MJ-12. Let's completely imagine that MJ-12 was never even in the discussion. Let's imagine Bob Lazar never came forward with his claims we still have a robust UFO subject to study. It's not predicated on these things being real or not real. So Mm -hmm. again, people tend to have tunnel vision where, well, you have to believe Bob Lazar because it speaks to everything that we're dealing with. Not really. Uh, UFOs were around long before Bob Lazar, UFOs were around long before MJ-12. So I think people sometimes get lost in in, in these beliefs.
0: I, I agree. I agree. Uh, I'm going to pop up a couple of questions here. Uh, what is the oldest UFO document document that you have? How far back does do you go in that?
2: Well, uh, I'll speak for myself and I'll let Barry speak because as of right now, you know, these collections are, are decentralized. We don't have them all under one roof yet, but that's the goal. Um, as far as documents, I don't know if we're talking government or just documents in general, uh, but I have some original 1897 original front page headlines uh the ghost ships just describing the airships of 1897
0: yeah how about Uh, that
2: uh barry had a chance to see those last october when he was here and uh that's some of that's probably one of the oldest items that i have that that chronicle the subject
0: and Barry, what about you? Do you have anything earlier? Uh, yeah,
1: I, you know, I'm, if it's a reference to government, uh, uh, the oldest evidence of government involvement in the United States that I've seen goes back to the War of 1812, uh. where uh, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, uh, there were incidents uh, around uh, uh, New London Harbor where uh, an American fleet was bottled up by the British and a number of times they tried to make runs out to sea to uh, get themselves freed from the blockade, and and uh, people had reported seeing strange blue lights hovering over the bluffs on either side of the the river uh, entrance to the uh, uh, to the ocean. So uh, this went on a number of times when the fleet tried to make a run, and it, it angered uh, the commander at the time, Stephen Decatur, and. And he was totally convinced that the citizens of New London were all traitors, and they're trying to rat them out to the British. But uh, he had reported uh, these incidents to Congress, and Congress actually launched an official investigation into these lights and concluded that they didn't know what they were. (laughs) They were unknown. The first UFOs. The first UFOs, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How Most people that? don't know that, but that's uh, that's a fact.
0: That is really interesting because there, you know, the theory of time travel, like they're coming back, like the Foo Fighters, and you know, during the conflicts uh, to historical times, like War of eighteen twelve, will be another example. And I'm not right. saying that I'm I'm thinking that's it. I I don't know what to think about that. It's just an interesting. Uh, coincidence possibly here's a document that i had found someone had sent me online this is 1796 an english document that is really cool talks about um these flying ships or flying ship with lights over it again 1796 and uh i'll try to remember if i can uh put that up in in the show notes but it's a really it's a great document yeah Uh, and i love you know anything historical myself so all this stuff is is fascinating to me let me see if i can get any other uh chat questions someone wanted to know about uh the first i mean you you have project blue book files you have j allen hynix but you also have you talked about mercer bob mercers
2: correct correct yeah. and i also have some of dewey Fournay's material uh i don't often mention that and for those that may not uh know that name or not familiar with that name Dewey Fournet was the Pentagon Liaison Officer for Project Blue Book in the very early years. In fact, he was Captain Edward J. Repelt's direct report uh, in the chain of command. And uh, I have Dewey's uh, military attache case that he took huh. to the Robertson panel in, in really? January 1953. We have <laughs> letters attesting to that fact, and it has his name embossed in gold on, wow. on the military attache case. We also have some of uh, uh, Colonel Coleman who was the public information officer for Project Blue Book in the 50s. We have a couple of Colonel Coleman's hats that came from his estate when he was uh, with Project Blue Book. And again, as you mentioned, the uh, Lieutenant Carmen Morano material, which has original UFO Project Blue Book case files and original photographs. James Fox, uh, I mentioned this at the UFO Congress, James Fox went to the National Archives to try to find very clear pictures of the Socorro uh, landing trace location. Uh-huh. and uh, he was rather disappointed. The, the digital images they had were very grainy, and I said, well, you know why that happened, James? He's like, no. I said, well, when Blue Book shut down, the files were sent to Maxwell Air Force Base where they were microfilmed, and then what you're looking at is a digitized image off of the microfilmed image, oh, and so you lose a lot of resolution, but in the Lieutenant Carmen Morano collection, we have an entire set of original black and white glossies. They're just off camera here to my left, And they look like they were developed yesterday. And James was ecstatic when he came here. And he, in fact, used some of those images for his documentary, The Phenomenon. Oh, right, yeah, when they did the segment on Socorro. Uh,
0: Here's uh, another one here. In general terms, what would you constitute progress in ufology?
2: Oh my God, that's probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked. That is a really (laughs) good question. What, what, What would constitute progress? Wow.
1: Barry, do you want to kick that one off? Or oh, I can answer it in you? a few words, solving the puzzles. <laughs> you can find out what every last unknown incident was, then that would be real progress. Yeah. I, but we, guess, need, we need information. We need, well, uh, we need details on those stories. And some of them are just probably a lost cause for filling in all of the, those blank spaces. So I, I think there will be forever uh, an unknown phenomenon attached to this subject. Right. I I would argue Hmm. progress
2: from our standpoint, just speaking for Barry and myself as historians and historical researchers, is, as I mentioned, centralizing the data to bring it all together. Because there may be files in Barry's collection, and we've talked about this uh, a lot, Barry and I, on the phone. He may have an element in a case file that ties into research that I'm doing, and we just don't know that there's a correlation because we haven't brought this material together. And then add to that Rod Dykes' collection, you know, Rob Swiatek's collection... Uh, and others. Um, if we can bring all this together, it's almost like you're finally bringing all the pieces of the puzzle together and we can paint a picture of what we're dealing with. But more importantly, again, is not just simply bringing the data together so we can hoard it, making it available to the worldwide UFO and scientific community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned, I did a podcast about two weeks ago and I mentioned that. In the last several years here in New Mexico, Martin, as I've been doing uh, UFO lectures, whether at libraries or university at the University of New Mexico, inevitably I would have one or two people come up that were in the audience. And they come up to me afterwards and say, I just wanna let you know, I'm very interested in the research you're doing and the UFO subject. By the way, I work at Los Alamos National Laboratories. And Mm -hmm. I've had other people tell me they work at Sandia. As if to to, uh, verify that statement, Uh, Two days after I did the podcast, I received an email from a gentleman here in Albuquerque, and he said, David, I just want to let you know I heard your podcast. I'm one of those individuals. I work at Sandia, although I plan to retire next year. Please keep me apprised of the work you're doing with the new organization because I would love to assist you.
0: Oh, my goodness. Isn't that something else? huh? Uh, Here's Andy has this question. How will the UFO records be searchable? And you know, maybe I'll elaborate a little more on that. Are these going to be in some type of order or would that be keyword searches when once this these digital files get up there?
2: Right, we haven't fully solidified, although Barry and I have talked about this a little bit already, we haven't solidified the overall structure of the files, both physically as well as digitally online. Uh, but we do have some individuals who have reached out to us who actually work Uh, in records management and in library curation. A number of people have reached out with different skill sets, Martin, since our press release went out, which is exciting. And we want to be able to bring in this knowledge and this wisdom from professionals that are used to actually cataloging large amounts of information. So I I can just tell you right now, I will probably be deferring to the experts, the people that do this for a living to say, Mm -hmm. what do you envision? What is the best way you see us being able to do this? And Barry, do you have any thoughts on
1: that? Uh, yeah, well, right now the I think the primary sort for the uh, the, the casework that we have is chronological for case uh, files. Right. But then after that, once they're scanned, you can do just about anything. Uh another trick is is getting them OCR. Uh there's a wide variety of styles and forms that we have to deal with, uh handwritten letters, things written even in crayon that uh To to create an OCR record is is a bit difficult, so that uh, we we need uh, outside help on that to determine whether all of that can be done in an easy fashion. And and related
2: to that, uh, Martin, you know, we've had a lot of people say, "Well, you guys need to put this into a database." And I'm like, "Tell me something I don't know." (laughs) But (laughs) it's incremental steps. First, we need to bring it all together. Then we need to digitize it. Once it's digital we can share that worldwide. And we do know a number of people that are working on database systems currently that have expressed interest in obtaining that information once it is digitized, but it's a systematic step-by-step approach. Centralize it, digitize it, then make it available for those that are creating these databases to then incorporate it into the database.
0: Well, here's a question that came up that I I have to put in front of some other ones because (laughs) I wanna know what you think too. What do you and Barry think of the Admiral Wilson documents?
2: Well, I'll just uh, echo what I said earlier. I think it all comes down to provenance. Uh, You know, these things that just kind of appear on the scene, I just don't take it face value. Am I saying that they're not legitimate? No, Uh, I don't know if they're legitimate or not. But all I can say is my default position on any documents that just suddenly surface without going through official channels, Mm -hmm. I'm very suspect. What do you think about that, Barry?
1: uh i'm a bit bothered by, by the way the story has evolved uh, the implication is that eric davis did an interview with admiral uh, uh wilson and and that's what's in the the paperwork but uh wilson uh, has denied giving yes. the interview and davis won't even comment
0: yeah do you think he likes the limelight and what i've been wondering why davis won't comment Do you think he's liking this whole thing? I
1: I can't really speculate (laughs) on that. I mean, he uh, either he's hiding something that never happened or there are higher issues involved that uh, he he doesn't want to uh, get himself tangled up with uh, in terms of uh, dealing with government official. I I can't say, but but uh, at least uh, say, you know, that that. Uh, I did the interview and defend yourself. He's not doing that. that that's right. bothersome.
2: Yeah. I appreciate Jeffrey's question though, Martin, because obviously that's a very topical subject right now in the yes. field. And uh, again, I think time may tell, you know, let, let's just see how the story evolves and where it goes. Right. Um, so
0: we have to jump off of uh, KGRA. So we're going to say good night to them over Bill. Thank you so much. Uh, for your work over there at KGRA Radio. I'm going to hang out just a little bit more so I can get these uh, quest- through these questions. So good night, everyone, over there at KGRA Radio. And we'll be back next week with uh, John Ramirez, ex-CIA, um, which will be an uh, interesting show. All right, so here's some other questions. We're going to just get to these questions here, and then we'll wrap it up after we get through them. Have your guests noticed the... That famous mass witness events tend to be missing from archive databases. For example, the Washington overflights. It was 1952, wasn't it? In
2: 1952. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 1952. Two consecutive weekends. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I understand the question. I mean, certainly we have a lot of data in our in our databases on the 52 wave, and have many of the original uh, documents, including the CAA report on uh, the incident, as well as uh, some of the original government documents as well. What Heide. about
0: other mass sightings does it does it doesn't seem to matter whether it's a mass sighting or, or not right?
2: Well, again, I don't know what databases he would be referring to so I unfortunately I, I'm not quite sure you know what he's if he's referencing something specifically in that regard. I will no. say that there have been mass uh, sightings that have gone virtually unnoticed and One that I think I've talked about on previous shows, Martin, is my research into the 1950 Farmington Flying Saucer Armada. Oh yeah. I would argue that this is one of the most significant UFO sightings that we have on record. Yet, when I had lectured across the country a number of years back, the vast majority of people had never even heard of this incident. And I'm not just saying that. Dr. James McDonald, in statements, uh, acknowledged that in some of his audio recordings with witnesses, he he feels that it was a very
1: significant event that was underreported. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I think we have a pretty good handle on most of the the known mass uh, sighting events in Washington, D.C. There may be some individual documents that are missing from the Blue Book record. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the case, but we we have a a large amount of information on that. Uh, The same with other mass events, but uh, uh, there were, as Dave said, some uh, incidents that... uh, uh, happened uh, a fair number of sightings that we weren't aware of, but they were buried in local newspapers so that uh, we didn't have access to them until we started looking. Uh, with with mm-hmm. technology the way it is now, we can look at thousands of newspaper titles and research all of those sources that we could never have access to before.
0: Yeah, no, it is so much easier to do things today than the old way. Uh, here's an uh, interesting question. Do you have any APRO
2: files from the Lorenzens, Gerald, come, th- thank there. you for that question. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, again, I think Barry and I were just talking about this this morning. Um, we are hoping to eventually acquire the APRO profiles. I do know someone that's in touch directly with the individual who has them. And we do hope that over time that they would find a home here at the National UFO Historical Records Center simply because... We already have the CSI New York files, one of the earliest civilian UFO groups. We have the NICAP UFO case file collection. We have the Center for UFO Studies case file collection. MUFON has their existing case file collection. The one we're missing are the APRO files. And just so your audience uh, understands, if they're not familiar with uh, the APRO files, uh, the report is that they consist of 18 four and five drawer file cabinets filled with UFO case files uh, from the 1950s, all the way up to the 1980s. Yeah, wow, that'd be great if you get those.
0: Uh, This question's from Moonbeam, what a name, like the name. Question, has there ever been any reports of gunmetal gray
2: rectangular shaped craft? Yes, (laughs) (laughs) I've actually stumbled across some of those reports in researching the triangular UFO uh, phenomenon. And in fact, in my book, I reference uh, two cases one from uh, New York in the 1980s, and another one during the, the first night of the famous Belgian wave, November 29th, 1989. Uh, Albert Kreutz was a dispatcher in Upan, the village of Upan. And he heard the, the police officers, the gendarmes, reporting these triangular UFOs. At one point in, in a break during the radio dialogue, he stepped out on the terrace and looked out at the night sky. And he didn't expect to see a triangle, because uh, he he thought that these guys were joking. But to his surprise, he sees a rectangular box-shaped object floating by silently with a white light in each corner. And I sa- I found several other historical reports, having gone through recently the, the NICAP case file collection. Uh, there are a number of these shoebox or rectangular-shaped UFO reports that are in, in the case files going back decades.
0: Uh, yes, a friend of mine um, in college... Saw what looked like a shoebox with lights on each corner. It's the best was, description I can give it. Like like a big yeah, shoebox floating in the sky. That's kind of what he described it as. Here's a uh, a great question. I think. What about documents, etc. By contactees?
2: Yes. Uh, great question. Thanks, Ray. Uh, we actually uh, I had met with uh, an individual in uh, Phoenix, and when we made the preliminary announcement about the new organization, a person came up to me and said. Uh, I just want to let you know that, you know, my mother uh, really followed the contact e-movement in the 1950s. I have some of Georgia Damsky's original newsletters and photos. Would you like me to, to send those? Would you guys be interested? And I said, absolutely. This is the thing. Uh, it doesn't matter what my personal interest is in the subject or Barry Greenwood's or any of our other board members. Uh, we never know what someone is interested in or what someone is researching. Uh, when I op- obtained the Lou Farish collection, uh, the Contact E movement, it's not something that I've really focused on heavily from a research standpoint. But when I inherited Lou Farish's collection, Lou was fascinated by the Contact E movement, and I have a vast archive of original Contact E literature, much of which uh, autographed by the men and women who who authored the the various periodicals and books. And so uh, that, in conjunction with some of Wendell Stevens' material. Uh, yes, uh, we do have quite a bit on, on the contactees.
1: Yeah, it's important to stress that this archive will appeal to all parts of the spectrum on the subject, not just uh, one side or another. Everything will be included. We want contactee literature. We want skeptical literature. Anything mm. that'll uh, enlighten as to uh, what the ph- phenomenon is all about Absolutely. and will uh, make room for it all. Absolutely. Excellent.
0: Excellent. Here's a uh, a question that, I mean, well, John wanted to know, have private groups, governments, or individuals bought UFO reports and removed them from public access? But I'll just, I'll add to that question. Ha, ha, are either one of you aware of anyone attempting to remove information for any particular reason?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, in the early years of uh, Project Blue Book or then Project Sign, Project Rudge. Uh, uh, the, the eventual head of Blue Book, Edward Ruppelt, said that there was a lot of uh, filching of files from the mm-hmm. early years. He felt it was souvenir hunting, but uh, you know there they may have been other reasons for it. But it, definitely files have disappeared uh, for one reason or another. Wow. Isn't that...
0: Yeah, I could see where people would want to take sort of like a souvenir type, type of thing, especially if it came... To uh, images, you know. I mean that that would seem like that would be the most uh, spectacular thing that someone may want to remove for mm-hmm. their own. Yeah, uh, it's
1: hard. It's hard to say exactly what might be missing. Uh, whether they were just ordinary reports or really hot ones, uh, it, it, there's a fair number of items in Project Blue Book that are listed as case missing. But uh, we had found later that uh, with a little effort and looking into other parts of the National Archives, we did locate some of those case missing uh, incidents uh, in, in, uh, especially uh-huh. in the files of the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron, which was sort of the buffer zone between a, a reporting person and Project Blue Book. They were uh, individuals at various air bases who when something would happen in that area, uh, they would receive the report and decide whether it was worth a follow-up or not. And often they would print up a a report and and take information and have the witness sign it and all. Sometimes they were forwarded to Project Blue Book and sometimes they weren't uh, for one reason or another. Again, it's hard to tell. But uh, we did find some of the missing incidents in Blue Book through those means and we've cataloged them.
0: That's great that you recovered, recovered that. Is video evidence always admissible? Well, I'd like to add a little to that, too. Do you have video data?
2: We have lots of videos, but admittedly most of those are uh, publicly broadcasted programs. I I, I don't think we have a rich uh, library of actual UFO footage. Uh, Probably Mm -hmm. the best source for that would be YouTube. Um, we do have, uh, I think, a few. Uh, Barry, we had that little clip from uh, Brazil, remember, from the 1950s. Yeah, and we also
1: have we also have some materials that were submitted to Blue Book uh, uh, when they were in existence, some actual film, 16, eight millimeter, and slide photography, and all. But uh, yeah, I mean, we do have some things that could be studied photographically.
0: Interesting. Uh, this. I'm trying to understand exactly this question here. Incidents uh, verified by multiple platforms and people. Should these not be research priorities, i.e. Oh, the Nimitz?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they are. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of research done on the, the Nimitz incident uh, uh, over the years, and there are there are others that have been reported since then. Uh, I, I wish we knew about them all, but the government won't let us uh, see what they are. They, they, the reports are still classified. yeah. But yeah, there's been a great deal of focus in the last five years or so. Yeah, I think SCU
2: did a pretty good job trying to investigate it. But admittedly, to Barry's point uh, and and to Brand's question, uh, we don't have access to the raw data. Uh, We really have videos and eyewitness testimony. But as I've mentioned, uh, that was released in December of 2017. And here we are now in (laughs) almost December of 2022. We still have yet to have one official page of document, documentation or analysis relating to those events.
0: Mm. Wow, that's
1: so we need yeah, you know the, to the material the, before we can really do a deep dive. The task force report last year indicated that uh, 143 out of 144 reports that they had on file were unexplained. Uh, I, I think we only know uh, maybe a bit about. A couple of the sightings the rest of them are completely unknown and now we're expecting a new report and according to some leaks which i don't like to quote but that's all we have right now that uh, half of the reports were unexplained so uh, there, there's another group apparently that's going to be added to the unknown category but it, we, we have no access to them but but if I may, just a brand's
2: question. I think it's a great question that he raises beyond the USS Nimitz incident. Uh, looking back historically through the Blue Book case files and other military files that we have, uh, I completely agree with with Brand in the sense that uh, it's one thing to have a subjective report, namely eyewitness testimony. It's much better, even if it's military or pilots. It's much better when you have objective data in the form of radar and sensing arrays that are detecting something that you can then correlate with the subjective narrative.
0: Uh, this uh, this is not really a question, but it's just a statement here. Eyes on Cinema has been posting some good stuff over the last year. Have you seen some of their videos, Eyes on Cinema? Uh, yes, heard,
1: uh, I have, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm a bit suspicious that a lot of this is being lifted from previous documentaries. Mm-hmm. I recognize some of the pieces. Mm there's so, a lot of
0: them and um that that person or that channel was booted off of youtube for a while i'm not really sure and now they're back on this is for education purposes only type yeah. of thing uh, so if,
1: a, if they were lifting film from other documentaries it could have been a copyright issue yeah
2: yeah, yeah. but there's I some was great just, stuff on there made aware of them someone just recently sent me a link yeah mm-hmm.
0: there's some great great interviews and information there, wherever it's coming from, it's good stuff. Well, so, and,
2: and Martin, that's that's a great point because there are a lot of people out there getting good information out there. We mentioned AFU in Sweden, uh, yeah. Isaac Coy, uh, who Barry and I spoke with just recently uh, in the UK. There's really great individuals and institutions out there doing this work already. By no means are we pioneers. We're simply just trying to make it the largest historical collection of material here in the United States. So my hat's off to the other individuals out there and and organizations doing the lion's share of work. Yes. One of the things you always think about
0: is, Oh, what if something happens like, um, fireproof, you know, is can a building be made? So it's less likely that there'll ever be a fire. I mean to lose all these things would be just absolutely terrible. Um, and so, but when these goes, when these eventually do make their way to the, uh, You know the university they're going to be protected there i'm sure
2: absolutely and we do look to hopefully secure some existing commercial warehouse or commercial floor space and most commercial buildings are set up with sprinkler systems and things of that nature so right yeah yeah, we definitely want to try to preserve the originals again with the focus being digitization but if we can retain the originals in a hundred years from now have people able to access dr Allen hynek's original project blue book records I think that that would be a wonderful contribution to the future. Yes, here's
0: an interesting question from your experience over the years, have the redactions become worse or less or more? Great question.
1: Uh, Well, I don't think there's any greater amount of redactions. I mean, I I think uh, they're pretty consistent with earlier documents and over time, many of those redactions are lifted anyway. So we'd have to wait and see what happens with the, the current crop of uh, redacted paperwork.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In, in 2017, I filed a FOIA request to get the unredacted Air Force Office of Special Investigation files on Farmington from 1950. Uh, because as, as late as 19, I think it was 85, Barry, if I remember the last FOIA attempt, uh, it was restricted access to that information. Mm-hmm. And when I filed my FOIA request, I actually received a phone call from the National Archives that uh, shocked me. I thought I'd get an email or a message. And the archivist called me. He goes, Dave, he goes, just want to let you know, he goes, those files actually were, were declassified in 2014, three years before your request. And I'm happy to send those to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what people don't realize is that when these things are, are declassified, there's no announcement that goes out to let people know. It's only... By filing your FOIA request, you might find out that, oh, okay, those those that records yeah. group is now available.
1: Not, not all of the people who work in government or at the archives uh, work hand-in-hand hand with one another. They, they have varying degrees of knowledge as to what the records are and how, whether they can be released or not.
0: How, I wonder how those decisions are made. Like, um, a lot of times there are so many years, right, where Correct. they're classified, and eventually that will be lifted.
2: And and sometimes it's, and Barry, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert in this area. Sometimes you may have a wide sweeping judgment that this records group is going to stay classified. And 90% of it might be trivial minutiae that's in Mm -hmm. those files. And it might not be because it's UFO related, because the, the, the series of documents you may want out of that huge records group might only comprise 20 pages, Right. But because there was this arbitrary decision just to keep that records group uh, classified, unfortunately, we're, we're restricted from seeing it.
1: Yeah, I, I can tell you a quick story. Uh, I, I think you, you may have heard of the so-called estimate of the situation, Yes, uh, a document that was written in 1948 and, and alleges that uh, UFOs are uh, uh, interplanetary. That was an early conclusion by uh, uh, Project Sign. Well, uh, the estimate, according to legend, uh, was kept for a bit, and it, it worked its way up through channels. The, the higher brass didn't feel it was supported by evidence, and they just ordered declassified and burned. And that's the way it stayed until um, uh, Ed Ruppelt's book came out and told a story of how he w- visited the Pentagon, and uh, uh, Dewey Fournay had shown him a copy of it that was in a, a file drawer at the Pentagon. It was, should have been destroyed, but apparently someone had saved it. So uh, it was somewhat elaborated on in Ruppelt's unpublished manuscript. He went into greater detail describing the document and all. But uh, many years later, a, a colleague of mine contacted Fournay, uh about it. And Fournet gave some very interesting detail. He said at the time, that he was in charge of the, uh, the Air Technical Intelligence Service branch files, which were kept at the Pentagon. And, and they were part of the broader current intelligence branch records. Now, I, I tried to follow up on that and I discovered that the current intelligence records uh, at that time, early 50s, constituted about 600 boxes of uh, records that were kept at uh, Archives 2, which is uh, a place that's a clearinghouse for the main national archives in in downtown Washington. And uh, uh, those covered a myriad of topics, but they were all off limits. The entire group were classified as a whole. And if the estimate is in there, which I suspect it could be according to Fournay's uh, comments, um, th- all of that would have to be declassified first before he could see if uh, it was there or not.
2: And in Dewey Fournay's material that
1: I acquired through Bill Pitts, uh, Arkansas
2: researcher, uh, I have a, a rare recording of Dewey describing that he did, in fact, see the estimate and Ed RuPelt had seen it. So mm-hmm. we have different uh, statements, different uh, texts that reference the fact that, yes, it was seen, it was described in detail, and uh, I think that to Barry's point, there may still be a, a copy of that floating around somewhere, but it's uh, the proverbial needle in the haystack.
0: Uh, David, last time we talked, you said the, uh, the website wasn't up, but I just happened to do a search here and you yeah. do have it. It's, is, is this a launched website or is there still more to, uh, to do
2: with it? Oh, there'll be much more to do with it. We're, we're just beginning and uh, we just wanted to get our, our uh, public facing there And one of the most important things is, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, you know, the money that we've spent on uh, gathering and building these collections. But we really need the support of the general public to help us raise money to get a a home for the history, as I like to put it. Um, If we can raise the money and more specifically work with local uh, government, I plan on meeting with the mayor of Albuquerque as well as the mayor of Rio Rancho, where I live, to see if there's any existing commercial warehouse or uh, commercial real estate uh, buildings that we could secure to start bringing this material together. Obviously, it would add to tourism for Albuquerque or the Rio Rancho area. So Mm -hmm. there's a practical aspect to it from uh, a government or, uh, you know, uh, Chamber of Commerce standpoint. Uh, but we want to be able to have a location where we can start doing the work, start bringing all of the, us together. And I will tell you, I've had just in the last week, a number of individuals here in Albuquerque, uh, volunteer stating, if you get a building and you bring this material together, I would like to come and help you start scanning that material. Or, and, uh, or
0: even yeah. moving it, helping moving it would be good. Yeah. And I have
2: a I have project issue, so I could use some assistance <laughs> from some younger people to help move these files. They're, they're, they're not light, yeah. but, um. So that's the goal. But, you know, we, we've spent tens of thousands of dollars collecting the material. If we can help raise tens of thousands of dollars to secure a, a home for this. Uh, and again, it will be afforded to anyone that wants to come here, but also it'll be available on the Internet once we eventually get it all scanned.
0: Are you going to have a place where people can contact you that are willing to help financially?
2: Absolutely. Our website that you just pulled up uh, on Mm -hmm. our main page, we actually have a donation portal. And I I do like to add the fact that unlike PayPal and some of the other pay platforms, the one that we use is designed for nonprofit. If you donate $20, the organization gets all $20. There's no skimming off the top. There's no percentage that's taken out. So Mm -hmm. 100% of your donation goes towards the organizational goals. And
0: then it's a tax write-off as well, right? Absolutely, right. we're
2: nonprofit. Yeah, if it, mm-hmm. if your tax, depending on your tax situation, I have to qualify it by saying that, yeah. uh, yes, uh, they are uh, tax deductible uh, donations as a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization. Excellent, and those aren't easy to set up, from what I understand. No, and Martin, I will add. Uh, I almost failed to mention. Within forty five minutes of posting our press release last Friday for the new organization. I received a message, which I shared with Barry and my colleagues. We received a a very kind message from a gentleman in South America. And he stated, David, I have a collection of UFO material in Portuguese. Would you be interested in that? Uh, And we said, absolutely. And our friend, uh, our friend Micah Hanks has some friends that can translate Portuguese. And so he's in the process of boxing up that material to send to us. Isn't that awesome? That's that's the power of press coverage. Absolutely. 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 But, but within 45 minutes, we already had an offer of additional material that we didn't have before.
0: Well, I hope this brings even more and you'll you're going to have to get the bigger boat for sure. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So thank you both so much. It's been a real pleasure. And I wish you, you and your families
1: have a, a
2: wonderful Thanksgiving. You as well. Absolutely. And a, and a good you.
1: holiday, too, till the end of the year. That's yeah. right.
2: Yeah. My thank best you. to your audience as well. Happy holidays, everyone. Excellent. All right. Well, you take care. It's always always a pleasure. Thank you, Martin. Thank
0: All you. Right. Goodbye now. Bye bye. All right, everyone. So next week we'll be back with John Ramirez, and uh, XCIA should be an interesting show. Thank you so much. And for those of you in the U.S., uh, again, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Hope you have a wonderful one. And we'll see you next week. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.